Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Welcome. Uh, we are marching on in our series, On This Rock, How, Bil- How Jesus Builds His Church. So I just want to say I appreciate, Joni, the way that you led us into the presence of Jesus. Sarah, Sam, not here, um, Billy, just everyone pressing in. And it's, it, is, it is absolutely true what you said, Billy. Like, the presence of God is here. He's with us. And it really doesn't matter how many people are here. He says his dwelling place is his church. So when we gather, we gather to God being here. Uh, it's an exciting place. Robbie, would you mind flipping on the lights? That'd be awesome. I was like, you're looking a little dark. We'll wake up. There we go. How does that feel? Grab some extra coffee if you want. Um, I thought it would be cool to start uh, just to recap where we've been over the last one, two, three, four, eight, nine weeks. Um, yeah, so it's been a little while, and I'm not, we're not saying these are the only values that Jesus uses to build his church, but we are saying they're important, and we want to be a church, and you know, of course we're going to talk more about different values and more values, but we, are, we do want to like say, as we're wanting to see Jesus build his church, in San Francisco, build sanctuary church here, and we feel God has called us into this. Like, what are the things that we want to make sure are in place um, that so that Jesus says, on that rock, on this rock, on the rock of my confession, on me, I will build my church. What are his characteristics? We started with grace, the foundation of it all. If you remember several weeks ago, talking about that younger brother, sorry, the older brother, um, being jealous and how he didn't let grace invade his heart. And then um, Dave Ainsworth, some citizens, came in and said, if we have grace as the foundation, then we can actually then have confidence in God. We, a culture of com- uh, supreme confidence in God because he did everything in the first place. So like we can't do anything to screw it up. Like We can have incredible confidence in Jesus and God's work and his purposes on planet Earth to build his church. And then Billy shared after we got back from celebration on generosity and just taking what we have and like, what do we have? Give what you have and see what God does with it. And he talk, spoke on like the, the loaves and the fishes and he's like, just give a little bit. Give what you got and see what God will do with it. If you remember that, um, Emily spoke on discipleship, how the kingdom of God expands on relational lines and like we challenge and learn from each other um, Robbie spoke on repentance and like how when you come to Jesus if you have that grace infiltrating your life you can show people exactly who you are it strips off performance and you can, you can be free to change free to repent I spoke on honor and how honor is like woven through the entire scripture and the church and 
said honor is the operating system of the kingdom. It's the rhythm of the kingdom. We talked about fidelity, to, Tom talked about fidelity to scripture and how, why we love scripture and ultimately it's because Jesus loves scripture. He was always putting himself under the authority of scripture and we want to be a church that we're using that as our guidepost, as our compass to, to navigate us. Worship. Uh, Becca talked about worship and she talked about how Dad wants to be with us. And sometimes we can do things to actually distance ourselves from our Father, but the throne room is open. She invited us actually not to lean on the front, but just actually when we come, we're giving an offering to Jesus. And we should be able to come and just give gifts. And we should be able to sing praises to our dad and be with him and receive from him. And then last week, Tom talked about the apostolic church, about being a sending church, wanting to actually... Um, see sending as a positive being submitted to Holy Spirit in the sending but also receiving receiving from outsiders receiving from apostolic uh, you know folks <laughs> that would come in from different cultures and different backgrounds and wise people and gifts that God has put them in to lay foundations here and we want to be a church that both sends but also receives uh, the apostolic gifting and today I was supposed to talk about a culture of prayer and as I was getting into it I felt I actually want to step back a little bit. We'll get into it a bit. We're going we're gonna to do a series on prayer in August. But I felt to step back, and I want to talk about a culture of his presence. Uh, and specifically, being obedient to his presence. Um, when I was learning about the Sabbath, someone challenged me that how you put... The, if, if you believe in um, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, if you believe he's in charge, if you believe he's, he's in control, how do you actually put that into practice in daily life? It's actually the Sabbath. Sabbath is putting into practice the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And I feel like prayer is putting into practice being a people of his presence. And so we're going to use that as kind of the outflow of this. But for today, I just want to kind of cue us up by talking about being a culture of his presence. And I want to speak out of John 2 today. Um, so we're a smaller group, but this is going to be great. So we'll have some interaction. Um, but if you want to turn to John 2, um, chapter 1 through 11. Sorry, verses 1 through 11. John 2, 1 through 11. I'm going to look at the story of Jesus turning water into wine. The wedding feast at Cana. John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Amazing. Thanks, Kels. That's awesome. Um, all right, so we're going to break into groups, uh, threes, fours, fives. Maybe we got enough for two or three groups today. Um, and look at that passage. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about man or humankind, about us? Yeah, we're in John, and, and he tells us that this is the first of seven, not just miracles, but signs. He's the only of the gospel writers that tell us that frame the narrative in these seven distinct signs. And a sign does point to something. It does, it does mean it's, it's this, but it's also something bigger than that. And so uh, we see all these kind of clues throughout. It says this was on the third day. It's kind of interesting that the wedding happened on the third day. Uh, he talks about the wine, uh, or not the, the water uh, uh, containers being used for ceremonial purposes uh, that are used to actually in the ritual in the um, purification process in the ritual so anyway you got all of these interesting things coming throughout the wedding itself you know scripture starts in a wedding of sorts and it ends in a wedding of sorts and john the baptist introduces himself as a friend of the bridegroom talking about jesus and there's all this idea about the wedding imagery as well um but i love the fact that jesus we, we meet him here and he's just kind of in an ordinary life event i've never been to a jewish wedding but i've seen the movies you know they seem kind of lively i just picture jesus kind of locking arms and you know just dancing around and I'm guessing he's not, yeah, I'm guessing he's not a wallflower at this party. Uh, and uh, these days, weddings would last up to seven days. It'd be huge events. The whole town of Cana would have been there. Other people would have been there until Jesus and his disciples are there. A huge events. I mean, people would mem- you know, remember these, these events. It's not just like today where you kind of go, I mean, these are huge events. And... there's a problem we don't know when in the wedding in the seven days this is but we're told there's a problem there's lack as billy kind of articulated they're running out of something really important i mean you can imagine i think um you mentioned it uh that um the shame that would have been involved in running out of wine at a wedding. It, this would have been remembered for all time as the wedding where they didn't plan for enough. They didn't have enough. They didn't make accommodations. They ran out. And you get the sense that um, not everyone kind of realizes what's going on yet, but there's a few murmurings starting to happen. And Mary notices, oh, they've run out of wine. And he goes to Jesus, like, hey, can you help? Can you solve this? Because they're about to run out and the shame that would have been on that event for everyone um, had nothing happened everyone no one else knows it yet but they know they're about to run out and just as Billy picked out maybe just reading this and maybe feeling like where do we feel like we're about to run out maybe it's parenting I was thinking about you (laughs) Atkins and like needing to be there for your kid, needing more patience for your kids, needing more and more and feeling like you can never have enough and you're about to, whatever they need, you're about to run out of it. Like you don't have enough. You're scraping the bottom of the barrel and they need you, but how are you gonna get it? Maybe it's business, like you're the one people look to for the plans and you're supposed to have the strategies and you're supposed to have the ideas and you're supposed to know where that next revenue is coming from. And 
and no one else knows it yet, but you've like run out of ideas and you're feeling like you're scraping at the bottom of the barrel. Maybe it's your bank account. You're looking and it's not enough. It's not there. Maybe you've lost some friends. Who's lost some friends in this season because they've moved out of San Francisco. You're like, man, do I have enough to like sustain a life here in San Francisco? Like, are we running out? Billy hit the nail on the head. How many of you are believing for a church to get established in San Francisco that's thriving and provides life and provides sanctuary to people? And you came here with a great vision and maybe you've moved across the country or maybe across the world for family. You know, you brought your whole family here and you've made sacrifices, you've served. And maybe for some of you, you're like choosing to go again after really hard seasons when it would have been really easy to just have given up on this whole idea of church or let's take a break a little bit or let's not actually press in. And you've said, no, we're going to press in. We're going to give our lives to this thing. And then the Shaws leave. <laughs> and then the interns leave. And then the Schaefers leave. And then the Moors in the back. Are we going to run out? Is there going to be enough? Did we plan ahead for this thing? Or is everyone else going to see this and be like, they didn't have what it takes. They ran out. And so maybe you're like me. My uh, MO when I get to these situations is like, all right, well, I'm going to kick it into second gear then. Like, I'm going to work harder. We're going to get the whiteboard out. We're going to plan. We're going to strategize. Yeah, we're going to do this. I'm going to stay up late. I'll just borrow from that family account. They don't really need me, right? And I'm going to white knuckle this thing and I'm going to get it going and we're going to like power through and somehow we're going to make it because it's all up to me now. I've got to be the one that provides. Um, The problem is Like, you can't just turn water into wine. (laughs) You can't just, you need, you don't need some motivation. You need a miracle. You need God to move. You need God to act. And so what do we see Jesus, or sorry, Mary do? She's observant first. She recognizes a need. She sees a need. She's like in tune with the situation enough to recognize, oh, there's a problem here. Not everyone knows it yet, but this is about to not be good. And what does she do? She takes it to Jesus. She takes it to Jesus. Um, And I think it's interesting. Two things, if you study the life of Jesus, that he is irresistibly attracted towards. It's people of faith and people in need. When there's a need or there's a faith, it's like Jesus is beelining to it. And I think we learn something in this story about the presence of Jesus starts in an ordinary social situation, just partying. And end, the story ends, and it says his glory is revealed, and his <laughs> disciples believe. And you get this picture of people beholding Jesus. An ordinary situation, add the presence of God, some need and some attention, and you've got people beholding Jesus. It changes everything. Uh, so Mary comes to Jesus. It was like, there's a problem, Jesus. What are you going to do about it? Can we do something about it? And her response, we kind of touched on this a little bit, is seemingly pretty surprising, right? Verse 4, I think I'll have it on the screen. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. It's pretty peculiar. I mean, if 
Kelsey told Elliot to go clean up his toys. And Elliot looks up and says, woman, my, why do you involve me in these things? Um, you'd be like, what's going on here? This is a little odd. I mean, you know, I know Jesus is a little older, but still it's like, woman, why do you involve me in these things? Like, what is going on? Um, the ESV translates this, what does this have to do with me? It's a little interesting phrase. I don't, I, I forgot to write down exactly what it translates to, but what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do? Why are you coming to me, Jesus? And we see that exact same phrase. I don't know if anyone else picked up on this, like, what is going on? The exact same phrase you see elsewhere in Scripture. In Luke, in chapter 8, Jesus crosses the lake, and he's immediately confronted by the, by the uh, demoniac, the, the guy that calls himself Legion. There are many. We are many. You know, like, and he's immediately confronted. And you know what he says to Jesus? What does this have to do with me? What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? It's the exact same phrase. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that Mary is, or Jesus is saying the exact same thing to Mary in the same way that this demoniac is said this to Jesus. But it's interesting. What is, what is the demoniac, what is the legion trying to say? He's like, you are completely other than me, Jesus. You're like outside of my world. What are you doing in my world? What are you doing here, Jesus? You're different. You're other than me. And I think what Jesus, by saying this to Mary, is teaching us something about the presence of God. And he's saying, you've known me as a child, Mary, but now we're going to be entering into something different here. Like the relationship is going to change. It's a new day, and you're going to have to enter into my world now. And we're told this is a social event, but something else is happening here, not just a social event. He's got his disciples with him. He just called in the last chapter his disciples to him. He's about to begin his public ministry. He's about to step onto the global stage, as it were. It's happening right here at this wedding. The kingdom is going to break in starting right now here, and they're going to have front row seats to it. And I think if, you know, it's interesting, um, your comment about Mary, Robbie, but um, it's interesting. I kind of read it, and I think, you know, he's been such a good son. He's done everything perfectly. Like, Jesus is the perfect son, right? And Mary came to him, and he's like, he's expecting Jesus just to, like, go out to Safeway and buy a couple bottles of wine and try to, like, you know, save the day. You know, he's just trying to, he's, she's expecting Jesus to go, like, do something practical. Get a couple of wine skins. Like, let's see if we can save the deal. But Jesus says, no, 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 Something different is about to happen. He's drawing a line in the sand. Mary, you're going to have to get to know me in a new way. D.A. Carson in his commentary says, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. His utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. I'm going to do some things a little differently. This is Jesus, right? He's like, let me, something new is going to happen. The kingdom of God is about to break in. His presence is going to change things. It's not that you're saying, does, like, does he not care about the situation? Of course he cares. Like, the story ends with close to, a th- if you do the math, close to a thousand bottles of wine. The, the best wine that anyone has ever tasted. 
Um, but he's going to do it a little differently. He's going to call the shots. We're, in a sense, going to have to enter into his world, do things his way. He's going to be in control. So he starts giving out instructions in verse 6. Nobody nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jesus for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Um, if you notice what's going on here, instructions, his instructions to these servants, I think are, are a few things. They're very, very specific, like simple enough that a child can understand. They're actually completely unreasonable given the situation and they require faith and action. It's like, imagine if I was a servant, it's like, the, the water, the water jugs, like the wine is out, Jesus, not, not the water jugs. The wine, the wine is out. Did you not, did you not hear like what Mary said? The wa- we need wine, not water, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Grab the, grab the water jugs. Go fill it with water. Grab the water jugs. Go fill it with water. And he's, I think he's kind of saying like, do you, like are you going to trust me? Are you going to, do you understand exactly what I said? Like it's not actually, it doesn't always make sense. Uh, what, what, what's happening here. And, and, and they actually ended up go doing it. They entered into his world. They, um, they, they, they did exactly what he was going to say. And then they saw the miracle happen. I remember um, a few weeks ago, um, isn't, it, isn't it true that like often when you hear God's voice, like when you enter into his presence and you're like, want him to speak to you, like, Sometimes what he says like does not make sense or like does it fit the moment? Um, if you remember a few weeks ago, I, I was sitting here in the meeting. I was up here where we normally sit, and um, I was like asking God to speak. I was like, "Do something here. Like I want to like use me, whatever." And I hear him actually prompt me, "I want you to go sing like a prophetic song." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no." Uh, <laughs> Last time I tried to sing in front of people, or like a couple of times ago, we were at a life group in Nashville, and I like, was like, all right, we don't have anyone to lead worship, we don't have a guitar, I'm just going to lead singing. And there were, um, we got done, like a singing a cappella worship song, and Kelsey can attest to this. Uh, we got done, and my best friend looked over me and was like, that's interesting, I've never sang a worship song in four different keys before. Uh, and... Um, basically it was like you don't bless us when you do that and so when i hear when i hear god when i hear god like saying I come to you, uh, i'm like oh no i'm not gonna like no god doesn't and so i just wait there and then jordan what does he do he gets up to the mic and he said you know what i just have a sense that god wants to have someone like sing a prophetic song and i'm like oh, dang it so i sit there and i like look around for a few seconds and it's like and then i see sarah it's you right you you came up and I was like, oh, God, thank you. I love that. So uh, she goes with the mic. What do you do? You say, you know what? I actually think I've got like a tongue, like another language I'm going to sing. And someone else probably has the interpretation. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and so she goes back. And I'm at my seat. And I like still wait a little bit. And no one's getting up. I'm like, oh, dang it. So I got to go up. And, and you know what? I think I sing in key during that time, you know. But... But it was like this moment that like God met in the middle of it. I didn't want to do it. And it didn't make any sense to me. I can't sing. Like it felt so uncomfortable. Go fetch the water jugs. What, 
did you not hear what, I need this. I don't need water, I need wine. But no, are, and there's actually this moment, are you going to enter into the presence of Jesus? Are you going to actually enter into his world? Are you going to let him call the shots? Are you going to let him do the things that are different? It's great news. The wine will be plentiful. The wine will be great. But we have to surrender control. I don't like that. I like control. I like to be able to figure it out. I like the whiteboard. I like to know what's the next step. I like to know where everyone's going to come from. I'd like to know how we're going to pull this off. I'd like to know how God's going to save many people. Are you going to be faithful in the moment? Are you going to go, go grab the water jugs? That's what he's saying. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Someone picked it up. Only the servants and Mary kind of really knew what was going on. They're going to bring the water to the master of the ceremony. The master of the ceremony is going to taste some great wine. And that's a pretty precarious moment in itself. You're going to bring the master of ceremony wine, but you know it's not wine, it's water. I mean, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable situation. God's got to come through in that moment, and he does. And for the more discerning among them, know who the true master of the banquet is in that moment. It's not the master of the ceremony. Jesus is the Lord of the wine. He says, I'm coming to do something. The kingdom's going to break in. I've come because there's lack in the world. I've come because we've run out of something. The world has not run out of something. We, we're, we can't do it on our own. And he breaks in and he said, I am Lord of the feast. I am Lord of the wine. And I'm going to make the wedding feast go on a lot longer because of what I'm going to do on the cross. He pours out his wine for us. The linchpin of it all, though, we skip verse 5. I love this, what Mary said. Do whatever he tells you to do. That's the key. Do whatever you do. Entering into God's presence means doing whatever he tells us to do. And this is how Jesus makes disciples. He expects us to do what he tells them, tells them to do, right? I mean, you think about the disciples all night fishing on the boat. He comes up, grabs the boat, and says, why don't you just throw the nets to the other side? <laughs> like, Jesus, you're a carpenter. Like, you can tell me how to build a table. Like, don't tell me how to fish. No, he said, okay, we'll do it. And they pull up down the fish. He's like, go, go pass out the, the bread and the wine. He's like, there's feeds 5,000. So, All right, I want you to spit in the mud. I want you to, like, dig it up, put it on your eyes. Why do I do that, Jesus? see. It's amazing. All right, there's going to be a donkey. You're going to go, just take the donkey. Someone's going to ask you, just say the Lord's of need of it. It's okay. Don't worry. Can you imagine, like, they do it. It's like, oh, it worked. It worked. Like, we just said the Lord had need of it. And, and, but that's how Jesus works. He, like, doesn't always give us the right to understand. He doesn't always. But he says, are you going to enter into my presence? Are you going to go there? And I think that's how the church is built. Uh, when we were in Nashville, we were in a church called Lifehouse, and um, they had just moved. The elder John and Michelle Privet uh, were their names, and they had just moved to Nashville. And um, they were in a little prayer meeting. They were like feeling this pressure to like, how are we? What is our strategy going to be? What's our vision going to be? How are we going to pull this thing off? What are we going to do? And they were getting together and praying. And Michelle Privet, um, the wife of the kind of the, the lead planter, just said, I feel like God has spoken to me in one of these prayer meetings. Like, oh, oh, good. Like, what's the strategy? And it was actually this. It was just like, all right, God said this. I want you to listen to me 
and do whatever I say. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Listen to me and do whatever I say. Uh, just a couple of stories of like the story that God wrote in Nashville. Um, they were going through a leadership crisis, a, you know, a conflict, a bunch of people left and they were in a room probably this size and like, how are we going to make it? Like, we don't even have any other leaders. How are we going to do this? And one night, John gets a call. John Privet gets a call from a guy named John Warstall. He didn't really know John Warstall that well, um, but he was younger than him. And, but they had like, made connections before. And John said, I, I just have been feeling God talking to me about like putting myself out there to be kind of involved in a church plant. I've been asking God about which should I go plant a church and I join someone else. What should I do? We've been praying and seeking. And then my son, who was young at the time, he was sleepwalking last night and he just came out and he said, John Privet, John Privet. <laughs> and then he went back to bed and it's like, so I'm, I'm like, I'm calling you. Yeah. And it's like, I'm calling you because I think God's saying like, we're supposed to come join you guys. Would you want us if we have you? And he's like, yes, please. And John became the second elder of that church and like the foundation from which they grown. Like another crazy story is they were meeting in a basement of a, of a building. They were renting in this basement. And um, things were going well. well. They weren't huge, but things were going well. But they felt God in a prayer meeting said, actually, I, I think you're supposed to buy this plot of land that had just come from sale not too far along. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, we have enough to buy the land, but, like, we can't build on it. And if we buy the land, then we're going to have to, like, move. And so they did. They had to um, move. They, they bought them to buy the land. They had to move outside of where they were meeting in this comfortable little basement of this corporate building. And go to a meet at a school because it saved them money so they could afford the land. And they, they didn't have to pay the rent payment anymore. But the school was massive. It swallowed them up. It was out of the way. It required a bunch of setup. But they had felt like God said buy this land. They didn't have a master plan for it or anything. Well, sure enough, that the, the place that they were meeting, the building that they were meeting, um, the landlords called them a little while later and said, hey, we're actually upside down. We're in financial trouble we're going to have to op- offload this property. We haven't offered it to anyone else yet, but would you just want to buy it from us? And they did the math and they realized, well, the land that they bought, they could probably sell for a bit of a profit now because of the crazy real estate market. And the other tenants in that building could actually pay for the entire mortgage. And so they went through it. They got the financing, got approved, everything. And now they're meeting back in the basement again for free. <laughs> Not only that, it comes with a small little plot of land that no one had even thought about. And so a few months later, they thought, wait a second, can we do anything with this plot of land? And so they, inv- they hired some architects and some surveyors and everything out. And they went and, and, and realized, actually, we can, we can build on this land. And so they actually ended up building a brand new church suited exactly for their purposes it's on the main street of this, this town that they are in. They were able to convert the basement into a co-working space to bless their community. Um, and the money that they gained off of all of the rent now pays for that building plus the new building. They're, they're rent-free. Now, you look at that and you're like, man, they got some strategy. They got some, like, they know exactly what, what's up. But the truth is they had no idea. They just like felt God say like, let's go. I was, um, when we were in Nashville, like getting a location started in Nashville, I was like really stressed out because you go to like these like church planting conferences or you like listen to these church planting gurus and there's all these like opinions and methods of like what works 
in church planting. Like you gotta have like 4.5, you gotta have like one parking spot for every like 4.5 people. You gotta have like a number of, of chairs for you know the number of people that you want. Like if you send out 10,000 flyers, you can have like a 0.12% response rate. Like all this stuff, like all these things you just gotta do, do, do. And I was like, I'm like, man, is this really like the dirty secret behind like church planting? Like it's just like all of these things you gotta do. And then I was on a podcast and listening to Terry Virgo and and how he they planted a church i think it was in brighton but i could be wrong um but he was like yeah we were in a prayer meeting and and someone went home and had a dream about a building and um i think i'm gonna get these details right but it was something like this it was like basically like yeah and so we went and drove around the city until we found that building i knocked on the door and asked if we could buy it for our church and we bought it (laughs) and it was like the holy spirit was leading the whole time and it's like when we are like that open to Jesus telling us whatever we're supposed to do. Like, God can use that. That's the type of people he uses. That's how the church is built. Kelsey and I, 12 years ago now maybe, walked into the back of a YMCA building in Nashville where a small little church plant was meeting. It used Two weeks before, it was 100 people that had a big catastrophe happen. We walked into a group of 20 people that were grieving. It had shrunk. And we walked in, and it was literally like the place that all the towels, like the sweaty towels, were like the, were doing laundry in the back. It smelled awful. There were like people doing laundry in the back. As we were trying to, like someone's up in the, like playing guitar, like trying to meet Jesus. It was like a size, like almost like this. And we walked in, and it was like, whew, something's different about that place. And it was the presence of God. It was like people wanting to meet with Jesus, the living God, it was like there was a hunger there. There was like, it didn't matter what the size was. It didn't matter what had happened. It was like, what was important is the living God was here. And if there's anything that I want to leave us with or like kind of charge us with as we go forward, it's like, what is Jesus inviting us into? What is Jesus? There's a lack. There's a need. We're all aware of that. All of us have our own needs. But Jesus is here and he wants to, he can change things, but he's going to do it on his terms. Are we going to enter into his presence? Are we going to look to him? Are we going to say, Jesus, what do you want right now? What are you doing? What conversation do you want to have me to have? Andrew Murray says, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. I think God is ready to assume full responsibility for the church yielded to him. As, um, as we've been thinking about this next stage for sanctuary, we've been, I've been trying to listen to God in prayer. I've had a few different things come up. I mean, a few weeks ago, Sarah actually sent me a WhatsApp. Is it all right if I share this? Yeah, and it was a, a little bit of a chaotic week. Um, there were dogs barking in here. There were kids running around, tripping over things. And um, it's a week that, I don't know if you remember, um, who was it? It was Amelia that was singing Happy Birthday in the back. Like, we were trying to worship. And then Ryan Howell, like, it's like, actually, God was speaking to me, giving me a picture of, like, a birthday party. I think God, and it was like, God met in that moment. And Sarah was just like, I felt God invite us. There's so much chaos around, but he actually loves the chaos. He loves it. He's inviting us. Are we going to be pursuing perfection or his presence? 
like what's this season going to be marked by perfection like trying to get everything right trying to whiteboard it out trying to white or is it his presence and he's like he's inviting us into his presence he's enough for us we were at celebration and uh there was a time where everyone all the churches in california got to pray over us and if you remember we were huddled in the corner there and it was like i went back and listened to the replay like two different people like prophesied over this church that we're entering into a season like Daniel in Babylon. And, and, uh, <laughs> and the, but the words, the, the words were very specific. It was like, um, I, I was even going to get it. So I just have it right. You're trying to figure out a strategic plan. He said, this is the plan. It's prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting for revelation. And he said, we will be without a doubt assured of his presence. It's the exact words. It's like, you know, plan like, you need to turn to prayer and fasting. Vinu, um, which is an apostolic leader from India, he leads like 200-something churches. Crazy. He, was, he, he took a visit to San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. We were sitting on that couch, and um, he just started praying over this church, praying over us, and he had the word of Gideon over us. God, he said, God has called Gideon, but what did Gideon do? He tried, to, he tried to make it happen. He tried to assemble his men, and God had to like, actually strip him of that and do something else. Um, he said, and Gideon thought, I got this recorded. Oh, now that I am chosen, I must show something. Gideon thought that it was going to be about his strategy. And may I humbly submit that you must resist that temptation. God will take it. He said this, and you'll be amazed how the victory comes about. And I just think, man, we need God's presence. We need him to turn the water into wine. We need him to show up. We need him to speak. I was reading in uh, Psalm 28. David said, To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. He's like, if I don't hear your voice, I'm going to die. Like, it's, as, it's as, as bleak as that. Like, there's no plan B. I want to hear your voice, God. Or I'm going to die. And so, what I thought is for this next season, you know, in the Old Testament, God poured his spirit out on specific people for specific purposes. But, and Joel said, and then Peter said, you know, basically in the new times, God will pour out his spirit on everyone. Everyone will get to see dreams. Everyone will have visions. Everyone gets to, gets to participate. In Ephesians 2, verses 22, it says, In you too, in him, you too, us, the church, are being built together to become the dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. We're the place where God lives. We enter into his presence and who knows what's gonna happen? Who knows what water he's gonna turn into wine when we do what he says. And so anyway, all that to say, what I wanna do is I actually wanna invite our church into this season in August. Who knows what's gonna happen? We don't know what, we've got some big problems. We're running out of wine, but I wanna invite us into a season of prayer. So here's, what, here's the plan that we're going to do. Sundays, uh, we're going to launch into a Teach Us to Pray series. Uh, we're just going to go through John Mark Comer. He's got a, a new kind of web um, alpha-like series out called Prayer on Practicing the Way. We're going to teach through that. We're going to do live teaching here. But we're just going to teach through John Mark's, like, how do we pray? What does it actually mean to pray? Both in our personal lives, for intercessory prayer, for con- contemplative prayer, for like praying together as a church. What does that actually look like? We're going to do a lot of discussion around that. The teachings will be minimal. Um, but then Wednesday nights, we're going to put that into practice. We're going to come over to our house, maybe have a dinner. We're going to pray for each other, pray for the church, and see what God says. 
I'll have to play and see what he says. For anyone who wants to, I'm going to invite you in to, to fast as well. I'll be doing it Wednesday uh, lunches. Maybe we can break bread together and fast as a community. I actually want to lead us in an exercise maybe to close out, to actually practice this now, uh, practicing the presence of God now. And there's an exercise that I've done a few times. Um, oh, yeah, thank you. Where it's really simple. Like, actually, Jesus said his children know his voice and hear his voice. And maybe you're very, like, practiced and, like, actually listening to the presence of God. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you just are, like, out of practice. Yeah, I'm just going to bet. But, like, we can hear God's voice now. So whether it's, like, you got a notepad in front of you, whether there's a, a card on your seat or in the seat back, whether you want to just get out your notes app on your phone or whatever you need, um, there's just three questions that I want to ask us um, to basically right now here, like, practice hearing God's voice. There's three questions, and it's this. Um, do I have them on the screen? Yes. First question, God, do I belong to you? All you do is just ask God. See what he says. God, do I belong to you? Second, what do you think of me, God? Third, is there anything else you want to say? That's it. God, do I belong to you? What do you think of me? And do you have anything else to say? We'll just take a few minutes here. And if you just would be brave enough to enter into this risk, enter into this danger of actually approaching God on his terms and saying, God, what do you have for me?